Hello and welcome to Westminster Watch. It's Tuesday, the 23rd of November. My name is Professor Dermot Hudson from the Department of Politics at Birkbeck and I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Ben Worthy. We're here to talk about issues in the news that are relevant for the study of British politics and we're going to begin with sleaze. So I thought I'd kick off with a discussion of the ongoing and rolling sleaze scandal that we have happening in British politics. This began uh, two weeks ago as a kind of cell phone vote by the government. Uh, Conservative MPs were whipped to uh, very unusually vote against sanctions to be imposed on uh, one of their own MPs, Owen Patterson, who had been found to have broken several rules of uh, the MPs' code of conduct. Um, But this kind of backfired pretty spectacularly, and it's a great example of the so-called Streisand effect, whereby trying to hide something, you draw far more attention to it. Essentially, uh, there was a vote that would have kind of taken apart the existing system for monitoring and sanctioning MPs who broke the code of conduct. In fact, this has now shed a whole lot of new light on MPs uh, and um, conflicts of interest, second jobs, and lots of other associated activities around lobbying. So I want to give you kind of three provocations, um, and I'll go through each of them one at a time, and then um, we can open up the discussion. So my first thought is actually... The whole issue around second jobs, around lobbying, around additional income, about what MPs do is not a revelation. Actually, this has been uh, hiding in plain sight for a very long time. As long as there have been registers of interest and there have been register of interest where you can find out about MPs' other interests since the 1990s, there has been data there. The interesting thing is that the data itself is not in a particularly helpful form. It's rather hard to put together, rather hard to analyse, but nevertheless, it's been there. And newspapers, local newspapers, national newspapers, think tanks, regularly run stories about register of interest. So actually, this what this scandal has done is provided a greater focus on it, but this issue has always been there. One of the big open questions, of course, is whether this happens to be a revelation to voters or whether it just confirms what they've always thought about politicians the second uh kind of thought around this is it's actually a conservative problem and even more than that it's a very particular sort of conservative mps problem some great uh analysis uh by the guardian and a think tank britain uh britain's future talks about the fact that most of the mps are conservatives but also they're conservatives from very particular seats and safe seats. And one of the interesting ways in which this scandal has developed is that it's turned a focus onto internal party battles. We've seen some quite stark lines between kind of red wall, newer conservative MPs and the older, more senior MPs who are more likely to be in a safe seat, more likely to have a second job and more likely to be earning some of this additional income. It's mostly been on the Conservatives, but not wholly, of course, there's been questions around the Labour Party, where, again, it's reopened old divisions between Starmer and Corbyn. My final provocation is that actually both the problem of sleaze and the solution with Boris Johnson's proposed ban on uh, working as a political consultant and on not prioritising constituents both kind of throw up an age-old problem, which is how do MPs go about representing? What do they do to represent And who do they do it for? There's been a lot more analysis and thought given by academics to how MPs represent. Of course, MPs can choose to be all sorts of different 
MPs. They can choose to be a constituency MP. They can choose to have a career and be promoted. They can choose to champion particular issues. And actually, the proposals might make everything far more complicated. How do you go about measuring MPs in terms of what is giving priority to a constituent or not? And how do we begin to work this out? So actually, there's a danger that the proposed solution might actually make the problem worse rather than solve it. Is it really so wrong that Douglas Ross, leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, has a second job as an assistant referee in the Scottish Premier League? It's a, it's a very good question. And what's been interesting about the way that this scandal has developed is that it's gone in several different directions. Of course, it initially seemed to be about second jobs. It very rapidly became a story about lobbying. It became a story about how and where MPs vote with Geoffrey Cox, apparently voting by proxy uh, remotely voting from the Caribbean while also engaging in lobbying on behalf of various countries. You've also got the question, a bit like the MPs' expenses, where the kind of behaviour that lots of people would be unhappy with has now become mixed up in the behaviour that not many people would be unhappy with. It's like the difference between declaring £30,000 for your second home versus you know putting down money for a toilet seat in the expenses scandal. And it becomes quite hard to discriminate as the scandal develops between the kind of severity of the action. The problem in that case seems to have been the non-declaration of the money rather than the money itself. What's interesting about this crisis is how it plays out on different levels. It's not really about second jobs per se. It's about the conflict of interest that came with specific second jobs uh, Jeffrey Cox taking a position against the British government and Owen Patterson using his links uh, with um, the private sector to lobby for regulatory change. But I think this was also, in a way, and you alluded to this in your remarks, about Brexit and about Brexiteers. In no sense have Brexiteers got a monopoly on inappropriate behaviour as politicians. One can only look at Remainer in chief uh, Peter Mandelson, who was uh, scandal ridden throughout his uh, career. So a charitable reading of Brexit was to suggest that people like Owen Patterson were willing to make broad uh, claims about what the European Union did in order to leave it. And that was justified. A kind of malevolent reading of Brexit is that those norms can never be put back together. And what I thought was really striking in the uh, official inquiry into what Owen Patterson did was the comment that he sincerely believed that he did no wrong. And I quote from this report, the committee commented that it does not doubt that Mr. Patterson sincerely believes that he's acted properly. Mr. Patterson is clearly convinced in his own mind that there could be no conflict between his private interest and the public interest in his actions in this case. But this is the same conviction that meant Mr. Patterson failed to establish the proper boundaries between his private commercial work and his parliamentary activities as set out in the Guide to the Rules. In other words, it was the brazenness and the, and the failure to uh, accept responsibility for this that was really driving this uh, pushback against what was an, a self-evident breach of the rules. And that speaks to the link with Brexit, the concern that Brexit was the, was the kind of slippery slope to an illiberal democracy of the kind that we've seen in Hungary um, and Poland to some degree. And like you say, it's a battle of the boundaries here. And who draws the boundaries and who creates them? One of the big problems around the MPs' expenses scandal was that MPs said, well, it was within the rules, some people pointed out, but you created those rules um, too. And it's this kind of um, norm slippage that can be so concerning and this kind of steady erosion of you know important ideas of where boundaries lie in a democracy. 
one other way of looking at it is to take up the kind of um, Hibbing and Thies Morse idea, which there's two kind of different types of problems that members of a legislature can have. They can have political problems like Brexit, where they can disagree with their own constituents, or they can have process problems, which are often about lobbying and expenses, where everybody disagrees with them and all voters are upset. And the difficulty here is that um, it's much more about process issues that all constituency constituents would be upset by rather than just you know different groups who you either will never vote for you or you couldn't persuade anyway this is also a scandal not about the conservative party but within the conservative party and i thought the economist had a quite nice take on this unfolding uh, scandal around sleaze they said well let's be clear about what's not surprising in any of this you know people didn't appoint or elect Boris Johnson as leader of the Conservative Party because he's trustworthy. He's patently not in many cases. Um, Nor did they appoint him because he had a fine understanding of the rules of parliamentary procedure or how to navigate a complex crisis with this. He patently doesn't. They elected him as leader because he was a winner. And this is the real worry about this scandal for the Conservative Party. The fact that it seems to have tarnished the Conservative Party, certainly in the short term, they have lost their narrow lead over the Labour Party. Uh, so this is hitting the bottom line for Boris Johnson's leadership of the Conservative Party, which is his reputation, his deserved reputation as a winner. Uh, he was able to get Brexit done. He was able to deliver this large majority. And now he find, finds himself on the back foot. Yeah, and it goes back to the secret to British politics, which is to quote Anthony King and Meg Russell and Phil Cowley since, that it is all about the relationship between the government frontbench and the government backbenches. And we can see it's not just the sleaze scandal, but a series of other things that are happening around us, whether they're about votes around social care or questions about um, how in control of politics the Prime Minister is. And you can see that relationship fraying. I think we're a long way from anything like a leadership challenge, but when you start to hear government backbenchers saying words like, you know, the Prime Minister doesn't listen to us, he doesn't know what we want, he's doing things against our will, and he's dragging them, whipping them through to vote on controversial measures that they then have to U-turn on within 24 hours. It's not a position which you want to be in, really. This brings us to the second issue um, that we wanted to talk about today, which is the Northern Irish Protocol. So we've seen a rather fluid approach from the British government over the last few weeks in relation to the Northern Northern Ireland Protocol. Lord Frost began uh, with a speech in Lisbon, a very provocative speech, where he suggested that the time uh, might be approaching for the UK to reconsider the protocol, uh, to tear it up, to replace it with something unspecified. The noise coming from Whitehall in the last few days is that uh, we're not going to see a triggering of Article 16 of the protocol before Christmas, right? That's a that's a very short-term for, forecast. But what we see, in a nutshell, is that uh, the Johnson administration, having negotiated this protocol, are now having second thoughts about it. What exactly is going on here? Because if we take a functional reading of this, actually the Northern Ireland Protocol is working reasonably well. So it's a very messy arrangement that tries to square the UK's departure from the European Union with the complexities of managing the Irish border. Uh, If there was one point of consensus in the Brexit negotiations, it was the desire to avoid a hard border. And the only way to achieve this, ultimately, was for Northern Ireland to continue to abide by certain single market rules and for customs checks to be placed on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. It was a messy arrangement. It meant customs checks down the Irish Sea, but... Um, in consequence of this, there would be no hard border on the island of Ireland. 
Now, this agreement got off to a messy start. In January, we saw the European Commission briefly consider triggering Article 16 itself because of a row over vaccine supplies. It quickly backtracked. And since then, the protocol has worked reasonably well. Actually, trade on the island of Ireland is booming. We see record trade um, between the north and south of the island. So if that's the case, why do we see these tensions? Well, I think the obvious explanation is that um, it's a very contested agreement and there is a real pushback against this from unionist parties in Northern Ireland um, who argue that it, I think quite understandably, goes against the very grain of what they uh, stand for, which is to maintain Northern Ireland's relationship with the rest of the UK. That's precisely what the protocol doesn't do by putting an economic border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, the question is whether Boris Johnson really cares about unionist parties, right? He certainly doesn't have to care about them in the way that his predecessor did. Theresa May was dependent on her for her political survival on the confidence and supply arrangement with the DUP. Johnson has a handsome majority for now. Um, and so his concerns over Northern Ireland and his concerns over uh, unionist consent for the protocol ring a bit hollow. So what's really going on here? I guess my provocation is that the Northern Irish Protocol is working too well in some respects, right? It's showing the advantages for Northern Ireland of having this privileged relationship with the European Union. Meanwhile, the rest of the UK doesn't have this privileged relationship and it's paying a high price. So the numbers emerging from the Office for Budgetary Responsibility are worrying indeed for Boris Johnson. They say that um, the long-term economic cost to the growth potential of the UK economy will be somewhere in the region of 4%. So that's a significant blow to prosperity in this country for now. The OBR allows for the possibility that Johnson may eventually find some way of making up for these costs with his global trade deals. But for now, Brexit's looking really costly. I mean, I was thinking back to the to the long discussions um, under Theresa May and then, then more briefly under Boris Johnson. And one of the problems, of course, for the unionists is that um, there was a lot of talk about this magical third option between either a land border or a sea border, that there was some sort of technological solution that never existed. And in a way, everybody involved wanted to believe that there was actually an option when there wasn't. Um, I think also, to go back to your point about Boris Johnson, it surprises me how little he cares about the union. And when he was appointed prime minister, he made himself also minister for the union. But this wasn't a signal of strength. I think this was a signal of weakness. And he's displayed, you'd say at best, kind of disinterest in the union for a conservative. And I think um, I'd point to, to the work by Michael Kenny and Jack Sheldon on this, um, that when the kind of planets collide and when there's a, you know, a, a competition between getting Brexit done and the union, actually, um, senior conservatives have gone for getting brexit done the problem here is that brexit and the union are intertwined and the domestic and 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 the external politics of these two things kind of can't be escaped so i think what we're looking at was a very you know stark set of alternatives that were hidden for too long by this magic technical solution that never arrived plus the fact that like you say senior conservatives made a decision about what would take priority you know, so one reading of what Johnson's trying to do is just maintain the sense of um, of 
political contestation and crisis surrounding Britain's relationship with the European Union. Paradoxically, that suits him quite well. He's able to rally around the flag. It also suits, I think, the DUP uh, in Northern Ireland with uh, stormant elections on the horizon. Also, I challenge the idea that Boris Johnson is really looking for a technical solution to this. He may well be looking for a solution that passes the pain of this onto others, particularly the EU and Ireland. If Boris Johnson decides to tear up the Northern Irish Protocol, then the EU will have a really tough choice to face over what to do about goods as they go from uh, uh, continental Europe to Ireland. Uh, will it decide to put customs checks within its own customs union? You know, for example, goods going from France to Ireland that would violate the customs union, that would impose significant pain on Ireland, but it would allow for the avoidance of a hard border if Britain chose not to implement those customs arrangements. Can I ask a question then? It looked at, for, of course, we, we focus necessarily a lot on what the British government is doing and, and particularly how it relates to the DUP, as you say. And, you know, the idea that there was this comment from Lord Frost that triggering Article 16 would create a new reality and all these ideas. But how much kind of flexibility or give is there on the EU side to really do something or make a change? How committed are they to the protocol? And what are the chances of there being any kind of significant change to it, do you think? So I think the EU is is extremely committed to the protocol, but the protocol only works as a bilateral uh, deal between the EU and the UK. So in the absence of a second party to that deal, it's not that the EU would choose this, it's just that the EU would have to contend with a different set of choices. And the choices it would have to contend with is, can it just allow a very large open border, albeit on a small island, uh, just to allow, allow it to remain open? I mean, this would breach the integrity of its uh, single market. Um, you know, there's talk about taking it on trust that there wouldn't be uh, goods going back and forth across the uh, uh, the Ireland Northern Ireland border, but this would be a very very difficult conundrum for the European Union. So it's not that it would choose this; it's not in terms of flexibility. But in the absence of the Northern Ireland Protocol, the EU has to default to a very different type of conversation about how to maintain the integrity of its single market. And then I suppose there's another actor that we haven't mentioned, which is the influence of the United States. Um, and I think a few yeah, the last few weeks there was a kind of drumbeat of article 16 potentially being triggered and then of course there was uh words from both the white house but also from congress about how that would not be viewed very positively and and will the united states continue to influence what's happening well i think the united states uh, is seeking to exert what leverage it, it can and i think it's an important actor in this debate i think lord frost is uh welcoming of negative uh, uh, reactions from the European Union. That's what, what he's really trying to get. But I think it's very damaging to the global Britain agenda to see uh, the other half of the special relationship remind the UK of its own obligations uh, uh, under the Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Agreement. So I think those interventions, Biden meeting with Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, were really, really significant. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for more Westminster Watch. If you'd like to learn more about research on politics at Birkbeck, about Birkbeck Centre for British Political Life and about the range of undergraduate, postgraduate and doctoral programmes we offer, please visit our website at www.bbk.ac.uk slash politics.